Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Being the first person to accomplish something can be both a blessing and a curse. The lack of precedence can be freeing. There's nothing to live up to, no legacy to overcome. However, being the first comes with its own set of problems. For one, there's nobody to tell you what to expect. One man didn't need anyone to tell him the odds, though. In fact, he was the person reassuring people right before they did something risky. This man, you see, was a surgeon. His name was Evan O'Neill Kane, and he was born in 1861 to Elizabeth and Thomas Kane. Thomas was a Civil War hero and the founder of the town where they lived, Kane, Pennsylvania. Elizabeth was a prominent doctor in the town. After Thomas' death in 1883, Elizabeth Evan and Evan's brother William founded the Woodside Cottage Hospital right there in Kane. One year later, Evan graduated with his medical degree in Philadelphia before returning home to practice at the family's hospital. The facility was unique in that the doctors who were not part of the Kane family often found themselves at odds with Evan and the rest of the clan. For one, when Evan became chief surgeon, he insisted his diagnosis be the final word when it came to a patient's treatment, even if he wasn't their primary doctor. Complaints by the other medical staff resulted in Evan and his assistant being forced to give up a little more control of their hospital. But Evan didn't let it stop him. His job had always been to put the patient's needs first. Now, he did this in a variety of ways, one of which was as a railway surgeon. If a rail worker was injured out on the tracks, Evan would travel from the hospital to the scene of the accident and stitch the patient up in the field. These incidents inspired him to come up with new ways of performing cleaner, more efficient surgeries when not in the sterilized environment of the operating room. For example, he drafted a paper describing a method of infusing the body with intravenous fluids while away from the hospital. It prevented hemorrhage-induced vein collapse thanks to the 10 needles supplying the fluids. Instead, the design was modified by a man named Edwin Hasbrook, but the technique described by Kane in his original paper is still in use today. Looking back, though, some of Kane's firsts weren't so great. Asbestos bandages may have been a breakthrough when he invented them 100 years ago, but today they would pose a serious health risk. Still, he did come up with a way for surgeons to not only stitch up head wounds in the field, but also see effects of the damage more easily by using mica to make tiny windows into the brain. But perhaps his greatest achievement was his contribution to surgery itself. In 1921, ether was often used as a general anesthetic for all kinds of surgeries, no matter how big or small. It was dangerous, and in many cases, wholly unnecessary. Kane was 60 at this point and had already performed roughly 4,000 appendectomies. He'd always used a general anesthetic like ether, but thought a local anesthetic might provide better results as long as the patient could handle it. To prove this, he scrubbed his hands and prepped for a test appendectomy. He used a new kind of local anesthetic called Novocaine to numb the area instead of a general anesthetic, which put the patient to sleep. Novocaine had recently pushed out cocaine as the local anesthetic of choice since it was far less dangerous and less addictive. Evan propped the patient up on a few pillows, injected them with Novocaine, and got to work. 
The surgery took longer than usual, but Evan was an expert. He cut through the necessary tissue to remove the patient's appendix and seal the blood vessels before stitching them up and sending them home the next day. The media was in awe of Evan's skill. Newspapers printed article after article about the miracle surgery, which didn't just use a new kind of anesthetic, but an entirely new method of dissection. Mirrors. Evan had needed mirrors to see what he was doing. His patient hadn't been like the other 4,000 he'd operated on in the past. This one was different, because this time, Evan was the patient. In fact, over the course of his career, Evan O'Neill Kane operated on himself three times. He performed a follow-up surgery on himself a little over 10 years later when he was 70 years old. The plan was to remove a hernia he'd gotten in a horse-riding accident. He was back in the operating room just 36 hours later, though, stitched up and ready to get back to work. And I know, some might call that being a show-off. And while that might be true, I'd prefer to think of it as more than a little curious. A person driven by their beliefs can do incredible things. They can do immense good for the world, like helping those less fortunate than themselves. They can also inflict pain on those who don't share their beliefs. And in rare cases, they can change what others believe as well, for better or for worse. Martin Luther, for example, kicked off the Protestant Reformation when he nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church in 1517. He was declared a heretic by the Catholic Church and forced to go into hiding. Still, his beliefs made people question their own, and he changed Christianity forever. Stephen and Nicholas had also changed things. In the year 1212, Stephen of Cloyes, a small town in northern France, claimed to have heard the voice of God. This voice, according to Stephen, had told him to gather as many people as he could find and march them into Jerusalem, where they would push out the Muslims living there and reclaim the area for Christianity. Stephen traveled all over France, preaching to crowds about how God had sent him on this mission, this crusade. Though some weren't swayed by his sermons, Stephen was able to garner support from over 30,000 believers who followed him across Europe. Unlike the first crusades that were launched in 1095, Stephen's endeavor lacked two big advantages. First, he didn't have the backing of the Pope. And secondly, he and his followers were without weapons. Instead of swords, shields, and spears, his followers carried crosses and flags. That didn't bother Stephen, though, who was on a mission of peace, not violence, when it came to those living in the Holy Land, even though invading another country that way was automatically an act of hostility. Meanwhile, in Germany, another crusader was building his own army. His name was Nicholas, and he hadn't been spoken to by God. Instead, it had been an angel that came to him with a similar directive. Like Hannibal in the year 218 BC, Nicholas led his thousands of followers over the Alps in order to reach Jerusalem. And while Stephen and Nicholas were marching their orders from heaven, the Catholic Church was getting nervous. They hadn't sanctioned either of these movements, so they viewed them more as potential enemies. Any mortal man with the power to convince that many people to follow them halfway across the world was someone to fear. The thing was, Stephen and Nicholas were not men. They were boys, 12-year-old boys. And their followers were children, too. Tens of thousands of children who had been coaxed away from their families to march with the purpose of displacing indigenous people in the name of their own religion. 
As Stephen and his band of young crusaders reached Marseille, they were tired and hungry and wild with zealotry. Nicholas's group didn't fare any better once they finally crossed the Alps into Italy. In fact, it's believed that both armies disbanded at this point. Many gave up and returned home to their families, while others stayed along the Italian coast and found jobs. Their plan had been to work until a ship came in that would carry them all to Jerusalem. Sadly, quite a few children met unfortunate fates. They died at sea. Some became beggars on the streets, or were sold into slavery. A very small collective did make it to Rome, though, where they hoped to get a blessing for their mission by the Pope himself. Instead, he gave them a pat on the back and sent them home. There was no way 12-year-olds were going to carry out a crusade by themselves. So, how did two young boys manage to convince thousands of other children to follow them all this way? Well, Stephen happened to tap into a collective of children who believed that they had been put on this earth to perform miracles. Nicholas, on the other hand, used all sorts of other methods to lure children to his cause, like impassioned sermons, the promise of miracles once they reached Jerusalem, and songs. Nicholas gained a bit of a reputation for his use of music to draw children to his cause, and because of that, the legend has it that he was the inspiration behind a chilling character created around the year 1300. That tale also involved a musician who lured followers to go on a journey, although his followers were not kids, but rats, a musician named the Pied Piper. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.